Good morning, everybody. Hey, let's praise God for our worship team one more time if we can. They do an awesome job, as always. Good stuff here. This, this is, you're kind of a rowdy crowd this morning. I kind of like it. A lot of hooting and hollering. You're Lutherans. Do you know that? My word. That's great. Spirit's moving. I tell, tell you what, it is a beautiful time out there. It is, we have entered that time of year when I feel like every single uh, coffee establishment or every single restaurant has a different version of pumpkin something. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're not cool, you're not hip if you don't have pumpkin something. Even Dairy Queen, have you had the pumpkin blizzard? What? That's what? I don't know what's going on there. But Another thing that everybody's doing this fall, I guess the cool thing to do is going to pumpkin patches, especially if you have the cutest kids in the world, which we do. Nobody else's kids are cuter than mine. Mine are the cutest, not yours, mine. So I guess that's what you do uh, is you go to pumpkin patch. And so being that it's fall, that's what we did uh, on Friday with my parents. And so uh, Caleb and Evie are our two kids. They're three and one. And so uh, there we go to the pumpkin patch. Now, Caleb calls uh, my his grandparents, Mamo, Grandma is Mamo and Poppy. That's their names, Mamo and Poppy. You know, maybe you have names that, as you're, if you're a grandparent, you have interesting names from your grandkids. Well, there's a Mamo and a Poppy on the other side, Tiffany's parents as well. So Tiffany's parents are Mamo and Poppy Cyclone. I don't know why you'd cheer for the Cyclones, but then my parents are Mamo and Poppy Hawkeye. So clearly the Annenson side of the family is on God's side, and then there's the in-laws. Uh, over here somewhere that I've married into somehow. But um, regardless, uh, there we are with Mama and Poppy Hawkeye at the uh, orchard. And so it's like a pumpkin patch and the, you know, the apple trees and you go and ah, it's pretty exciting, you know, looking for things for kids to do. And they're like, oh, look, a bunch of pumpkins. Great. Okay. And then the apples and everything. And then there's like a wood horse and the thing. And like Caleb's like, yeah, it's okay. And then out of the corner of his eye is this great big shed, which is filled to the brim with a giant pool of corn. You know what I'm talking about? Only in Iowa do we have to make our own fun by having our children jump in a giant germ-infested pile of corn. Young parents, you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, it's filled with corn. It's maybe filled with some other things too. But besides the point, they're loving it. It is awesome. And so all these kids are jumping into it and it's surrounded by hay bales. So Caleb's like, oh, I can do this. And so he hops up on the hay bales and climbs up on there. And then he gets up and he like, he sees other kids are jumping and he's like, I, I totally got this. And he's kind of looking over the edge like this. And he goes, uh, Daddy, I don't want to do this. Right. And my response is, come on, buddy, you can do it. Like, trust me, it's okay. The corn is like eight inches deep, right? You're not going to drown in eight inches of corn, right? So other kids are doing it, you know, toddlers, you know, babies are doing belly flops in, just rolling in, you know, the whole bit. So like, you can totally do this, but just trust me. Everybody say, trust me. Trust me. I just say, trust me. He's got this. And then two or three times, like, no, I don't want to do it. And he starts walking out. He starts going over the hay bales and walking out of the shed. I'm like, no, 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 no. We don't give up that easy. So I grab him, stick him back on the hay bale and say, look, bud, you can do it. They're doing it. They're doing it. You got it. You can trust me, right? Just trust me. Like, you got this. And so two or three times leaving, no, you got this. And he's standing over the edge. He goes, Daddy, yeah, I want you to catch me. Okay, so I'm going to get in the giant German-infested pool of corn and climb in there. So you have to take your shoes off. I take my shoes off. And I get, I'm like eight times the size of any other person in the corn pool at that time. And so there I am standing in this, you know, eight inches of corn, which to Caleb is the giant abyss of corn death. And so there he's looking over like, I don't know if I'm going to do this. And finally, finally I say, Caleb, trust me, you can do this. And he finally jumps in and he, <laughs> catch him. And then I set him down in the corn. He goes, 
Oh, okay, and then he's fine from there on out, and he's you know, rolling around and gets buried in the corn and everything like that, and has a blast for the rest of the day in all the stuff. But it got me thinking about trust. It got me thinking that trust is really the foundation of any human relationship, whether you're jumping in a pile of corn or you're trusting God with something bigger, whether it's trusting somebody else or trusting God. No relationship survives without trust. And it's one thing when I say, well, do you trust easy? Are you the kind of person that trusts easy? When I say that, it's not just with other people, but in your relationship with God. It's one thing when trusting is you're a little kid and you're jumping into a pool of corn. It's another thing when you are that kid. And we're grown up and the stakes get a little bit higher and you're the kid that's trusting God and taking that leap of faith and God's the father that's standing down there with open arms saying, you can trust me. It's totally different when we have to trust God with our finances. It's totally different when God's saying there, trust me, trust me, I'm going to take care of your family. Trust me, trust me that your relationship is worth, your marriage is worth fighting for, even though it's really difficult right now. Trust me that I'm going to provide for you, that you're going to be okay, that I'm going to watch over your kids when they go to school. Trust me that whatever you're up against right now, that we're going to make it through. I remember, you know, growing up, just my dad, like I have my floaties on, jumping into the pool, you know, and my dad's saying, trust me, trust me, and, and now I know a little bit more of his heart as a father myself. Trust me, trust me, and it turns out that's what our Heavenly Father desires from us as well. Let's read it together. Jesus says it himself in Matthew chapter 14. Let's read it together. Nice and loud up on the screen. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. 147 times in the Bible, God says, trust me. Or David in the Psalms says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Or trust in the Lord and his unfailing faithfulness and his goodness over and over and over again. It would seem that trust for Jesus, saying it in the final moments of his life here in John 14 as he's in the upper room with his disciples. Trust is not some sort of like afterthought on the outskirts of Jesus's teaching. It's the heart and center of it. And that's because without trust, there is no relationship. All relationships are built on trust. And Jesus came to have a relationship with you, not just kind of a half-hearted religion, but a relationship with you. And so there's got to be trust. Trust says to another person or in our relationship with God, I trust that the words that you're saying are reliable, that you're going to come through. And most importantly, when it comes to God, God, I accept your love. It's one thing to know God's love up here. It's another thing to live as a son or daughter, a beloved child of God. It's an entirely separate thing to trust the heart of the Father. And as a dad myself now, I can only imagine nothing stirs the affections of God the Father and his heart more than when one of his children, you or I, say from the depths of our heart, God, I truly trust you. Like a child jumping into their father's arms saying, if you don't catch me, I'm not going to make it. Do you have that kind of level of trust in God? If I had like a trustometer up here today and 10 was like, God, I trust you with everything. And one is like, I don't want anything to do with you. And five is like, well, God, I, I say I trust you. And when I'm around church people, I say, oh yeah, I trust God for sure. But when it comes to certain areas of my life, I'm not really ready to give you full control. You know that anxiety that you have all the time? trust issue? You know that anger that you have towards your spouse that you try to control things all the time? Trust issue. 
You know when you get stressed out and worried about your kids and if they're making good decisions? Trust issue. You know when you feel like you're not a good enough parent, you're not a good enough spouse, whatever it is, because you're not performing enough? Trust issue. Trust is the foundation of every single relationship. How important is your trust to God as a father? One of my favorite Christian authors, a great, great man, Brennan Manning, writes this up on the screen. He says this, trust is our gift back to God. And he finds it so enchanting that Jesus is willing to die for love of it. You ever thought about that? Of the many reasons that Jesus went to the cross is so that you would never doubt his love for you? So that you could always trust his heart? That Jesus died for love of it, and that we would respond not with some sort of, Jesus died so that you could be in a relationship with him and that you could trust him, not some sort of half-hearted religion or I'm going to kind of be a Christian and do the religious thing when I have time or, or squeeze it in or practice it in my free time. No, a daily, dare I say, ruthless trust in God's love. Now, I know it's easier to, to, to look back on those times when we were a child and say, well, yeah, it was easy to trust back then. I just had to trust that my parents were going to wake me up in the morning and put some clothes on me and feed me, right? That's pretty easy. But as we grow up, the stakes get a little higher. The decisions get bigger. And almost as we grow up, you remember these times when the shades of innocence kind of get pulled back and we start to realize that we live in a profoundly broken world. And it starts with your own personal experience. You remember these little moments in your life. First time that your heart gets broken by that boy or girl at school. You encounter the school bully. You encounter people that don't agree with you and that treat you unfairly. We fail at a sport. We get hurt by a friend. We don't get into the college that we want. We don't get the job we wanted. We lose somebody close to us. We fall into that addiction, and the the pain goes beyond us, and we kind of wake up to the world around us as we get older and realize that it's not just inside of us. It's all around us, and then we wake up one day and realize that there's a Category 4 hurricane bearing down on our nation. And we start to wonder, God, where are you in the midst of all this? Are you still the same dad that has your arms open? And God says, yes, right in the middle of the pain, right in the middle of the darkness, right in the middle of a messed up election season, right in the middle of a natural disaster, right in the middle of the storm of your own heart. God says, you still trust me? You still trust me? It's like, what what kind of... What kind of God has the audacity right in the middle of the reality of this world to say, do you trust me? Well, a God that knows that trust is not born out of an absence of pain, but right in the middle of it. And nobody knows that reality and nobody knows that truth more than Job. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn to Job chapter 19? That's where we're going to camp out for this morning. So this week, we're continuing the series, a series of messages we've been in, in the book of Job, which if you're new today and uh, you were kind of hoping for this powerful, inspirational message, and then you heard our scripture reading for today, you might be like, oh my word, what did I get myself into, right? Job's kind of that way. It kind of throws us for a loop. It's not this normal, you know, exciting scripture to read that's going to encourage us, but there's depth in it. 
If you're just getting caught up or want to get up to speed on where we've been, Job is a really long book, and we've kind of divided it into five sections for the sake of this sermon series. So the first week, uh, we talked about the first couple books, uh, first couple chapters of the book of Job. So if you guys wanted a snapshot of the book, the first section is all about Job's trials. Everybody say trials. The first two chapters, Job is afflicted. The enemy comes, the darkness of this world comes, takes his, his farm, his business, his, his family is destroyed, his children die, he comes up with this terrible skin disease, and, and all these things literally writhing in pain, laying on the ground, asking God why. And we kind of left it there that week, saying sometimes that's about as real as life gets, that we just live in the gray areas of life, in the why God, and trusting in that, and in, that's the first section, but then the next week, instead of faltering, sometimes we get really bad advice, and we learn the different temptations that come our way in pain. Everybody say temptation. temptation. The temptations that come particularly to get bad advice. We talked last week about how sometimes we try to say things to other people to try to comfort them in their pain, and we actually end up doing more harm than good. Well, that happened to Job. Three different friends, so-called friends, come to him and try to offer solutions, but they're not helpful at all, and we're really tempted to receive that bad advice and believe that it's true. And this week, we're going to go a slightly different direction, and right in the middle of Job's pain, this week, we're going to talk about, you, it starts with a T, can you believe it? Uh, we're going to talk about trust. Everybody say trust. Trust is that word we've been talking about this morning that maybe as it relates to the book of Job, you're like, wait a minute. You know, if I say Job, what word or theme or idea comes to your mind first? The book of Job, if you've been reading along, what comes to mind? Suffering, right? Pain, heartache. If you know anything about Job, it's about terrible, terrible things that have happened. It's pain and suffering. But what I want to challenge us with this morning is to look a little bit deeper and maybe understand that the book of Job is maybe about something else. Another way of looking at it is this. Every single one of us is going along in our lives. We have, whoop, go to the next one. We have a start and a finish. So here we are, and we're traveling along the, the road of our lives and our relationship with God, and every single one of you knows those moments in your life. You know, we say when it rains, it pours. You have that day or that week or that year that season of your life. Every single one of you can kind of point to a moment in your life as you're going along that's not a little speed bump or a bump in the road. It is an X marks the spot. Whether it was a death in the family or a, a divorce or a painful relationship or a, a sickness or a disease or uh, something that happened to you that was so bad that was defining to you or a family member that your life is not gonna, you can't just keep on going that your life is going to look different. That's the spot for Job. That's the spot of pain in our life, and that's the spot of suffering. And those times don't leave us the same. And so as we've been learning through the first few chapters of Job, there's a lot of different ways that you and I respond to the pain of our lives. The, the first one that we learned uh, last week that oftentimes is we turn to this thing called moralism. That's what Job's friends were trying to get him to believe, that maybe there was something that he had done to bring on God's punishment, that you had sinned too much or you weren't a good enough person, and that's why God was punishing you. And if you were just a better person, then maybe all these bad things wouldn't be happening to you. So, Job, you need to go repent. And that's the advice that he got. Well, we don't want to fall into that ditch. We want to stay on the road. The other thing that we do when we encounter pain is that oftentimes we can become a cynic. 
we can become bitter. And every single one of you probably knows somebody that is living life with a victim mentality. Oh, the world is out to get me. God is out to get me. The the world owes me something for everything that I've experienced. Maybe that's you. Maybe you have that bitterness inside you today that still lingers from that moment on your journey. And you've never unpacked that. You've never allowed yourself to open up and let God heal those places in your life. He wants to. You know you don't have to carry that. But instead, so often we become a cynic, we become bitter, and you realize that's no way to live. It's exhausting to live bitter towards the things that have happened to you in this life. But a lot of people do. And they get cold and they become a cynic and and it's exhausting, or, or we play the comparison game, and we say, well, my life doesn't look like theirs. I, I graduated high school with them. I graduated college with them, and they have this nice, beautiful family, and I got nothing, and I'm not married yet, or I'm divorced, or why did I have to get divorced twice, or whatever happened, and, and I don't have kids yet, or I'm not able to have kids, or I want to live where they live, or I wish I had a different job so I had more money, and the comparison game will just steal you of all your joy. So we don't want to become a cynic. We don't want to fall into that ditch. Either the other ditch that a lot of us tend to fall into is that straight of denial, especially in the church. We're terrible at this sometimes. Put on the happy face. Oh, I'm at church, so you don't want to admit that things are too bad. And whatever has happened to you in this life, we just push it down and push it down and just pretend like it wasn't that bad. It was that bad. And it's okay to say that. It's okay to admit that. Whatever you're feeling today, you're feeling. That's real to you. And so let's not ignore that. And so we don't want to fall into any of these Ditches, we want to stay on the narrow road, as Jesus says. We don't want to get off track. Job shows us how to avoid the ditches in the first 20 chapters of this book. And instead of going off the ditch, Job keeps his eyes fixed on God. And because of that, we learn that the entire point of the book of Job is not suffering. It's trust we learn that suffering and pain are just the catalyst to get us to the place that God wants us. That's the point. If you remember how the entire book of Job started, Satan comes to God and he says, I know the reason that people trust you, God. I know the reason that everybody's worshiping and praying to you and think, oh, you're such a great God. It's because everything's great in their life. It's really easy to worship when everything's great, isn't it? It's really easy to praise God and to pray when everything's going well for you. And Satan kind of gets after God a little bit and says, how about this guy named Job? The only reason that he is holy and blameless and righteous and worships you is because he's rich, is because he's wealthy, is because he's got a huge family, he's got all these things to be thankful for. Well, what if I took it all away? How's that trust now? And that's Satan's ploy this whole time. And so the question that is lingering when we arrive on the scene in our reading for today in chapter 19 is, will Job trust the heart of God in the midst of terrible suffering? Once we get past the, why does God allow pain and suffering, big question, which we talked about in week one, and if you missed that week, go back and look at that, we get to the next question of, can we trust God in the midst of suffering? Job is an extreme example, and some of you are sitting there today going, I don't know if I really resonate with Job because I don't have some terrible skin disease today, and I don't think that my entire life has been destroyed. I'm just kind of trying to get through the pile of laundry that's at home that's stacking up. Like, I'm just trying to make it through the week or whatever. That's just the reality of your life. But every single one of us 
resonates with this because I want to ask you, what is your trust based on? Trust is something we can all relate to. Is your trust based on what God has done for you lately? Or is it based on something different? Does your trust in God go up and down like a roller coaster? If we brought out that trustometer here today and when things are going really well for you and you finally found the love of your life or you, you uh, have that new relationship you're excited about or you got that job you wanted or you graduated or things are going really well and you found a great church and you have a great circle of friends and you're healthy, up the trust meter. And then what happens when that moment of pain or suffering happens? You say, oh, Oh, God, I trust you, but not that much. <laughs> Where are you, God? It's easy to trust when everything is going well. Nobody knows that better than Cubs fans, right? <laughs> Any Cubs fans out there? You want to admit it? Okay, now, how many of you are bandwagon Cubs fans? Just started in the last six months, right? Okay, good, you admitted it, right? Don't lie, you're in church, right? This is easy, right? Here's what's happening right now. All the diehard Cubs fans that have been Cubs fans their entire life and, and, and grinned and bared it through all these terrible, disastrous seasons are looking at all the recent acquisitions to the Cubs bandwagon going, where were you for the last hundred years when we stunk, right? And now everybody's a Cub fan and this guy's hold up. We believe, we believe, right? It's easy to trust when everything's going well. It's easy to believe when your team's winning and has the best record in baseball and is two series away from the World Series. It's easy to trust. Oh, they got it. They're going to win the World Series. Yeah, did you have that trust in them last year? Or the year before? Or 20 years ago? It's easy to trust when things are going well. And that's the question before us and before Job this morning. So look at chapter 19. We're actually going to start in verse 17. When we arrive on the scene, Job has been ridiculed and tormented by these friends, and now Job is crying out, and Job's crying out in pain, and he's looking for a little compassion, and he reminds us, he's going through this list of everything that's terrible in his life, and the reason I want to start in verse 17 is this is kind of a heavy topic, I'll admit that. It's a heavier sermon today, and so I wanted to take any advantage I could to get a little breather and look at verse 17. Out of everything that could possibly happen to Job and everything that's terrible in his life, he says, my breath is so offensive to my wife. <laughs> you kind of have to laugh a little bit at that, don't you think, right? Everything's terrible. I've lost everything. My house is gone. My business is gone. I have a deadly skin disease, and on top of it all, my wife won't even kiss me because my breath stinks, right? Give Job a tic-tac, all right? Who says the Bible's not humorous, right? Deeper than that, Job is struggling. Look at verse 21. Say it says to his friends, have pity on me, my friends, have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Verse 22, why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? So here's Job, he's been lamenting for days. This entire chapter is, God, is Job just crying out to God, where are you, God? Why me? Why now? Why this way? Job's saying, God, I want to trust you so badly. I want to jump into your arms. I want to trust you that everything's going to be okay. But it's so hard right now. Have you ever been there? Whatever that situation is in your life, that moment of pain or suffering, and you say, God, I want to trust you, but I don't want to just say I trust you because I'm at church or it's the right Sunday school answer. I really want to mean it, and that's what Job is struggling with. I, I want to trust you, but I, it's like I can't see. For Job, it's like he's walking blind. 
What do you do when God seems absent? When you can't see him? Well, nobody knows that better than a gal named Alyssa, who I want to show you a clip of her story. Who, she knows what it feels like to, to be walking blind because, well, she is literally walking blind. Take a look and see what we can learn about trust. Let's take a look. I've been blind since birth. I have a disease called Leber's congenital amaurosis. People often ask me, you know, is it hard being blind? Is it scary? And it's not. It's just a normal way of life for me. There was a time in my life when I was angry about being blind. I was very into makeup and trying to look my best. I really wanted to look in the mirror and see what I look like, but I couldn't. The Lord spoke to me and he told me that I am beautiful on the inside and that I don't have to worry about what I look like on the outside and that he is the only one who can tell me what I look like. The mirror can't. If I could see, I don't think my faith would be as strong. Because for a blind person, you have to rely on the Lord. It's like your faith becomes more real because you're used to not seeing things. You're used to believing in someone that you can't see. Like for example, my mom, I can't see her. I may be able to hear her, but even if I couldn't, I can't see her, but I know she's there. So for me, I think it's easier to know and to understand that though I can't see God, he's really there. I think it has a lot to do with walking by faith and not by sight. I have this desire to help people, but I feel like being blind sort of limits me as to what I can do. But the reality is, God has given me a gift of singing for Him and leading worship, and I feel like that's my way of helping people. And I'm grateful for that. joy and so much anticipation because I know that the first face I'm ever going to see 
is Jesus. And that means the world to me. Gives a whole new meaning to 2 Corinthians 5-7, where it says we walk by faith and not by sight. Right in the middle of her pain, right in the middle of her suffering. She, she could have let that moment be the defining moment that defines the rest of her life, but she says, God made me beautiful. God gave me a gift that I can help other people, and right in the midst of her suffering, she does what? She doesn't become cynical. She doesn't think that God has punished her, and that's why he's made her blind. She doesn't shove it under the rug and deny it. She worships in the middle of her pain, in the middle of her frustration. And in the same way, she says, I, I he discovers that her blindness with her parents, like it forces her to rely on her parents for everything. She says, and it forces me to rely on God for everything. It drives her back to the heart of God. And in the same way for Job, he's, Job's got to feel like he's walking blind in so many ways. And some of you have had those moments in your life where, like, God, just tell me what to do. I don't know what decision to make. I can't see the future. And yet right in the middle of his pain and his frustration, read a few more verses down to verse 25. After all his crying out to God and lamenting, Job says, yet I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Verse 27, I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. In the face of darkness, Job worships, even when he cannot see God. And what's stunning, what's stunning about these few verses in, in a book that's all about pain and suffering this one little bright spot, what's stunning is you have to understand where this is at in the Bible. Is Job in the New Testament in your Bible? No, it's in the Old Testament. Was Job hanging out with Jesus on the roads of Nazareth? No. This is hundreds of years before the name Jesus is even mentioned. This is hundreds of years before we even get to the prophets, where there's even prophecies about a Messiah one day will come, a ruler of the nations. None of that's happened yet. And here's Job, even though he cannot see right in the middle of his suffering, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. He's not saying the pain isn't real. The pain is very real. But Job says, God, I'm going to trust you that one day a Redeemer will come, and I'm going to see his face. <laughs> I know that my Redeemer lives. This is where knowing a little bit of the original meaning of the text here and some of the context is really important. When Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, he's not just saying Jesus. Anybody that was living in those days and understands the historical significance know that the Hebrew word for Redeemer here is goel. Everybody say goel. If you add a little to it, then you're Hebrew. You're good. All right? So everybody say goel. Something like that, right? You got to understand Goel doesn't just like, oh, that's Jesus. Anybody that heard that in those days knows it's more of a judicial term. It's something that's used in the courts and the civil courts particularly. Jewish law in Job's day said that if somebody was 
wronged or un, uh, unjustly treated, if they had some of their land or their livestock or their house taken away or they were uh, unjustly uh, sent to prison for a crime that they didn't commit or something like that, that the goel would be almost like the, the designated person, the next of kin that would come along and be able to work to make things right, to redeem them, to avenge whatever had happened to them to almost like stand by their side and be an advocate or plead their case, we would understand it as a lawyer. Close family friend lawyer. And so here is Job saying, (laughs) crying out to God for 20 chapters in anger and doubt and frustration and right in the middle of his pain to those that were hearing this in that day, Job is literally saying, yeah, a defender, an advocate is coming for me too. A koel is coming for me too. And even though I can't see it right now, when Job says that my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth and I will see him with my own eyes, anybody that's hearing that would have in their head this picture of a courtroom scene where Job is standing before the judge, which we know is God himself, who everybody thinks is punishing Job. And Job says, no, 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 I have a koel too. And it's not some hired person that's thrown in there as a lawyer for me. My koel is the judge, God himself, my redeemer, is going to come walking down of his judgment seat and come and stand next to me, and the judge himself is going to be my advocate and fight and plead for me. And, and my redeemer lives. My Goel is standing right next to me to come to my aid. Powerful stuff in the middle of pain. And it's statements like this from Job that are the reason, again, I go back to Brendan Manning and one of these powerful statements he has in one of his books called Ruthless Trust. He writes this, Trust is often born on the far side of despair. And if you're in this moment right now, or if you know somebody who is, know this, God is not blind or deaf to our cries. He's crying with us. He is the advocate that is standing right next to us. He is the goel of our souls. And that one day, Job says, (laughs) I'm going to see his face. Did you catch that quick line at the end of the video about Alyssa that's blind? You know, you don't think about this, but if you're blind from birth, and if you're always going to be blind, she says, the joy I have that's coming is that the first face that I'm going to see ever is the face of my Savior. Can you, how cool is that? That she trusts in that and Job is saying the same thing. He's like, I I can't see, but I know that I'm going to see my Savior, my Redeemer one day. I am blind and I take comfort in that. Alyssa says, I I can't see my mom and my dad, but that doesn't mean that I, I know they're not there. In fact, a few chapters later, skip ahead to verse, or excuse me, to chapter 23, Job says basically the same thing as one who is essentially living blind to God's presence. And Job says this, but if I go to the east, he's not there, speaking of God. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he's at work in the north, I don't see him. And when he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But listen to verse 10. But he knows the way I take. And he has tested me. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Job says, 
I can't see God. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know why I'm going through what I'm going through. I can't see God, but I know that he sees me. And that changes everything. He watches over me. He knows every step that I take. And that's what matters most. And in that declaration of trust, it's like a blow, a fatal blow is made to the kingdom of darkness. Can you imagine what Satan's doing in this moment? He's going, no, 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 wait a minute, Job. That wasn't the plan. You're supposed to not, you're supposed to fall away from God. You're supposed to fall off into denial or become a cynic or be angry at God. Job, you're not supposed to trust God. You're not supposed to worship him. (laughs) Satan's freaking out in this moment going, oh, wait a minute. This isn't how pain and suffering is supposed to work. This wasn't my plan. God says, you can trust me. Job, you can trust me. You know, I know for a lot of you it's hard to relate to Job because it's so extreme and you're like, that's great for Job, but what about me? You're sitting next to a lot of people this morning that have had a lot of hurt in their life. And we don't talk about these things a lot because sometimes they're hard or they're awkward, but sometimes I think we just need to name them. We just need to talk about them. If we can't be real here, where can we be real? A couple years ago, there's a couple that's still a part of our Hope community here that experienced the joy of finding out that they were expecting their first child, that they were pregnant, and they were overwhelmed with joy, told all their friends, only to find out that, I don't know, maybe 11, 12, 13 weeks into it as they went back to the clinic that they couldn't find the heartbeat. Sort of a close-to-home Job situation and I remember just sitting with them there in that pain and that hurt and and crying with them and you know six months a year later they found the courage to try again and lo and behold they got pregnant again and they were so excited and everything was going along well and they were you know getting their their nursery ready at home and buying the crib and getting clothes and all this stuff and about halfway through the pregnancy they find out that this baby has developed some sort of rare uh development disorder where it affects their their organs this rare condition that affects specifically your nervous system and you know a nervous system in a baby's development controls everything and the doctor said it's the baby won't really be able to grow uh, beyond a certain size but you're still going to need to deliver they told the mom And so I remember that night that they delivered this baby which had already died and they, after a while they invited some close family and my wife and I and we went in and I remember, I talk a lot. Preachers get a little long-winded and have a lot to say. And I remember in that moment, I, I had nothing to say. Every time that I thought of something pastory to say, it just it didn't, it didn't need to be said. And it was awkward and it was hard and we just sat there and weeped with them and cried with them and just kind of stood off and, and just looked blankly at the wall and we didn't know what to do and we didn't know what to say. And then right in the middle of this kind of just 
uh, what do we do, this awkward silence, the dad looking at his son that had just died, says, you know what, guys? He is such a gift from God. And I'm, God, I'm so thankful that we got to know him and love him for at least a few months. And I didn't say this, but in that moment, my first thought was, no, 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 Dad, you don't need to say that. <laughs> I know, like, the pastor's here, and you want to sound spiritual, and you want to say the right things because you think that that sounds extra-religious or spiritual, that it's the right thing to say. But to, to be honest, it feels a little bit like cheap hope. To be honest, it feels a little bit like cheap grace. I don't really need to say that just to make things Better. And I didn't say that, but then as I thought a little bit more about their story and I thought about what they'd been through in, in the past few years and that moment of trust, God, we thank you for the time that we had. We trust you and we will still praise you. Still, I will trust you. That moment of trust was born out of a process of mourning and weeping and wrestling with God and pain and adversity and questioning. And yet in the end, that beautiful little moment of worship right there in the hospital room. The same process that Job's going through. And I remember going home that night or the wee hours of the morning and just thinking that worship, that testimony, what a blow to the kingdom of darkness. What a blow to death that thought it had the final word, that thought it was the end of the story. It's almost like in that moment that dad just reached out and punched a hole in the darkness. Just thinking about that idea, the darkness that's around us, and the stories told of a young Robert Louis Stevenson. Some of you have heard this story before, but he's... 19th century famous author, and as a little boy, back then he would sit and look out his window into the darkness, and there would be a lamp lighter that would go down the way. This is how they would light the street lights and light the path, the road. And the lamp lighter would come out with his torch, and he'd climb up on a ladder, and poof, into the darkness, the light would appear. Climb down the ladder, carry it away, climb up the ladder, poof, light the next one. And down the road, he would Go And one night, the young Stevenson was looking out their living room window, just fascinated, just fixated out on the street. And his dad came and said, son, what are you looking at out there? What do you see out there that's so fascinating? And the little boy said, daddy, it's incredible. I'm watching that man out there punch holes in the darkness. And when Job says, my Redeemer lives in the middle of a suffering, and when this dad says, thank you for the time we had with our baby in the, in the hospital room, holes are being punched in the darkness. And it's not just, you guys got to know, it's not just in those extreme cases. Every morning when you wake up and just whisper the prayer, God, I trust you. Another blow to the darkness that would say, God cannot be trusted. Every morning when you wake up and say, God, thank you for putting breath in my lungs today. I trust you for my life. 
Every morning when you get up and say, God, I, I, I trust you that you're going to provide for our family. I trust you that you're going to take care of my kids. God, I trust you that we're going to be okay financially. God, I trust you that you're going to provide. God, I trust you that your opinion of me is always going to be more important than what any other male or female in this world says. God, I trust you that your love for me is not based on how much I can do for you, but on the fact that I'm your child. God, I trust you. I'm putting my trust in your love. Every time we utter those words, it's like we're punching holes in the darkness. But you can only fight the darkness if you have the light, as Job did, unless you know the Redeemer. And the reason Job has so much confidence is because that Goel, that advocate he knows is going to stand with him in his pain, not absent from him. In the end, somebody will stand with him. And isn't it true that when you think about working through your pain and suffering in those moments, the people you relate to the most, the people that you're willing to share and be honest with, are the people that have been in your shoes. I mean, that's why we have so many support groups at Hope and here at Hope Des Moines and the people that are leading those support groups, whether it's uh, substance abuse or whether it's uh, infertility or whatever it is, people have been down those roads are leading it because you can relate to them. You say, you've been there. <laughs> you feel my pain. You know what it's like. You've been in the hole with me. I was thinking about that this week and this random scene popped into my head from the show The West Wing. Any West Wing fans out there? Two of you. Awesome. So there was this show called The West Wing, right? And I, it's old. I, I love it. It's, it's been done for many, many years. But I've been waiting for this moment to use a West Wing clip in a sermon. And I thought, what better than Job to bust out a clip from a political drama? So here we are. And here's this young man named Josh and Leo, they work for the White House. Josh is um, on staff with, with the, the West Wing and the White House, and Leo is the chief of staff. And Josh has done all these things, and, and he's got anger issues, and he's punched a hole in his, his bedroom window, and he cut his hand, and anger management he's been going to, and going to counseling, and he's depressed, and all these different things. And he's done all these things that would justify him getting fired by his boss, Leo, the older gentleman in this clip. And Josh is borderline becoming an alcoholic, and Leo has every reason to fire him except for the fact that Leo is a recovering alcoholic. And watch in this last clip how we discover the power of somebody walking in your shoes. Let's take a look. Only someone who has been down in the hole, down in the pit, and walked in our shoes could possibly understand our pain. Whatever you're going through today, whatever you're facing, know that God himself is the friend that hopped down there with you. 2,000 years ago, he didn't stay up in the comfort zone of heaven. He came down to this broken, sinful world and walked in your shoes and showed us the way out of suffering is through radical trust in the Father. Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane in his final moments before he's taken into captivity. He's crying out to God, just like Job, why me, why now, why this way? And yet his prayer ends with, not my will, but yours be done. That's radical trust in the Father. A few days later, Jesus is hanging, suffering. Oh, did you hear that? Jesus 
was hanging, suffering. Jesus suffered on the cross. God has turned his face. He's abandoned Jesus. Jesus was abandoned so that you would never have to be. God has literally turned his face and Jesus, even in the midst of his pain and suffering, calls out and his final word says, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And like a little boy standing on the hay bale ready to jump into his father's arms, Jesus breathes his last, showing us not only the way to die, but the right way to live. Father, I trust you. But he didn't stay there three days later. Jesus comes walking out of his own grave, defeating sin and death and the power of hell, which means that you and I can proclaim today, just as Job did, just as that dad did, my friend, in the hospital room after losing his child, can proclaim, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? You have no power here. The reason we can say that and trust God, even in the midst of the worst pain and tragedy and heartache, is because the worst thing that could possibly happen to us, the thing that we get afraid of the most, is death. That's been taken care of. Jesus has kicked death to the curb, and there is no power there anymore, which means that your death is not the end of the story. Tragedy is not the end of the story. Cancer is not the end of the story. Your loneliness is not the end of the story. The pain in your marriage or with your children is not the end of the story. The results of a election season are not the end of the story, praise God. And a hurricane will never be the end of the story because Jesus has overcome death. The worst thing that could ever happen to us, Jesus says, I got you. I got it taken care of. And if I've handled eternity, if you can trust me with eternity, can you trust me with Monday morning? And every day after that, can you jump into my arms and trust me? I've given my life for you. Now, trust me with yours. And so this morning, we don't want to just talk about it. We want to sing about it. We want to put our hope and our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ and remind ourselves of these powerful words of the final song that we're going to sing together, that Jesus has overcome the grave. And because of that, we can trust him today. So let's stand and let's sing together. Let's be fully present to what God wants to say and let's make this our prayer this morning as we sing, Oh, praise the name.